0: Good morning, everyone. Oh, that was pitiful. That was pitiful. Good morning, everyone. Wow, all right. That was a lot better. Uh, Let's just keep that enthusiasm over the rest of our our time this morning. Uh, This morning, we're going to be looking at a passage that is a little out of order. In one week, we're going to be looking at the events surrounding Christ's triumphal entry. Uh, We call it Palm Sunday because those that were praising Christ as he was triumphantly entering into Jerusalem were laying down palm branches and just praising him with their hosannas as he entered into the town. Uh, Today, we're going to be going out of order. We're going to be looking at an event that took place later on that week, in the week that's often referred to as Christ's Passion Week. So, turn with me in your Bibles at this time to Luke chapter 22, Luke chapter 22, and we'll be looking at verses 39 through verse 46 in a sermon that I've titled, The Weight of the Cross. The weight of the cross. And we're going to be looking at a specific event when Christ was in the Garden of Gethsemane, agonizing in prayer over what he was about to endure. Luke chapter 22, and in a moment we'll read verses 39 through 46 in a sermon that I've titled, The Weight of the Cross. From the very moment that Christ put on human flesh, the very moment he joined humanity, the weight of the cross was heavy upon him everything he did both in his private ministry as well as in his public ministry was done under the shadow of the cross nothing took him by surprise especially going to the cross but that doesn't mean that the weight of the cross wasn't heavy upon him every step that he took he knew was one step closer to going to the cross knowing what the cross meant the shadow of the cross became heavier and heavier the closer it got therefore it comes As no surprise that Jesus, as we'll see here in Luke chapter 22, was was in immense agony in the hours leading up to the cross as he was here in the Garden of Gethsemane praying. The passage of Scripture that we'll be looking at, it takes place, again, several days following Jesus' triumphal entry, which is what we'll look at next week. And it shows us the human side of Christ, the human side that we don't always get a good feeling and a good grasp of. Jesus was completely God, and at the same time, completely man. But most of the focus of the life and ministry of Christ, it focuses on his divinity, on the fact that he is God. His miracles, we focus in on his teachings, and just the incredible things that he did. But sprinkled throughout the Gospels are instances where Christ's humanity is seen, such as when he hungered. There was times where he was tired and where he needed to lay his head down to sleep. We read about in John chapter 11 where he wept over a dear friend, Lazarus, who died. We read about how he wept over, in Matthew 23, the nation of Israel as a nation rejecting him. But perhaps one of the greatest examples of Christ's humanity is seen here in our passage this morning. As he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, hours leading Up to his crucifixion in the passage that we see uh, here before us we see both the physical as well as emotional agony things we may never have expected to see in the all-powerful God who spoke the world into existence there are some people who we meet who don't show much emotion And maybe you're you're thinking of someone right now. Someone who, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of what's happening around them, nothing seems to faze them. Nothing seems to affect them. At least, not on the outside. Their demeanor appears no different, whether they're happy or sad. And they're so hard to read, because you don't know if they're upset with you. You don't know if they're going to give you a hug. You don't know what to think, because on the outside, they don't show hardly any emotion. But on rare occasions, these people give us a glimpse of human emotion so that we know they're not a robot. We know that there's something real going on inside of them that just couldn't be contained on the outside. And it shows itself in a smile or it shows itself with a tear that comes down from the eye. When you see this, you know that it must have been something so significant to elicit such a reaction from a person who rarely shows any kind of emotion such an emotional reaction is usually seen though because the person didn't anticipate what was going to happen or what had happened jesus was never taken by surprise jesus was never shocked he was never caught off guard and yet what we're going to look at here in luke chapter 22 is that he was in such great agony in agony over something he knew was coming and if he was in agony we know it must be really serious after jesus had instituted the lord's supper he washed his disciples feet he led the disciples out through the city and to the garden of gethsemane to pray the word gethsemane literally means oil press and the garden sits on the western slope of the mount of olives which is just east of jerusalem The garden is made up of a number of beautiful shrubs and a number of olive trees. And in this garden, they had a giant press where they would squeeze the oil from those olive trees, from those olives, and make that olive oil. And because of its proximity to Jerusalem, Jesus would frequent this garden to pray. But this time, here in Luke 22, would be much different. As Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples, He had told them that his crucifixion was coming up very shortly. And prior to him going to the cross, he told them that he would even be betrayed. They left the upper room, and Jesus led them through the city. He led them across the brook Kidron. And history tells us that when sacrifices were made at the temple, which would have been made during this week because this was a Passover time, It's quite likely that when Jesus crossed over that brook, the brook Kidron, that it was running red with blood from all the sacrifices that were being made there at the temple. And this would have been a sure reminder that his blood would soon flow for the sins of the entire world as he would offer himself as the final sacrificial lamb. None of that stopped him though. For Jesus kept going that night through the city out to the Garden of Gethsemane. And there in the garden, Jesus prayed three times. He prayed three times for the Lord to remove the cup from him. Now, we'll get into the details of what the cup is in just a moment. But he prayed three times. And I want you to listen to how Matthew records all of this. In Matthew 26 and verses 39, 42, and 44, we get the record of him praying three times. It says in Matthew 26, verse 39, it says, And he went a little further. They're at the garden at this time he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as it not as I will, but as thou wilt. In verse 42, he went again the second time and prayed, saying, O oh, my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. And then he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Jesus wasn't talking about taking a literal cup that each of us can take and hold in our hands. The word cup may mean many different things, but one of the meanings is something that falls into one's lot. Or to experience something fully. As Jesus was now just a few hours from his crucifixion, the weight of the cross was excruciating. It was so heavy upon him that it was literally crushing him. As he was there in the garden, in fact, when Jesus was leading his disciples to the Mount of Olives to pray, I want you to listen to what a few verses prior to Matthew 26 and 39, what I just read to you says, in Matthew 26 verses 36 to 38, they tell us just how Jesus felt physically as they were getting to the garden. In Matthew 26, 36 to 38, the Bible says, Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. He was laboring physically laboring as the weight of the cross was literally pressing down upon him. This was not the cup. As agonizing, as sorrowful as it was, this was not the cup that he prayed to be removed three times. He prayed three times for the Lord to remove the cup from him, but each time he prayed, he acknowledged that it was God's will for him to drink the cup from him and he would always do God's will. It was the cup of agony that Jesus would drink in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he would drink it alone. When Jesus first began his public ministry, many people loved him. The crowds loved him. He healed many that were sick. He healed a number of people that were diseased. He raised several people from the dead. He fed those who were hungry. He even gave sight to the blind. And on, and on several occasions, he did things that just remarkably changed the course of people's lives forever. At one point, as, as, well, as, as he drew all this attention from the multitudes, there were still many that refused to acknowledge who he was however when jesus began speaking of of the deeper internal or eternal matters of surrendering to him it didn't matter how many good things he had done how many miracles he had done how many undeniable feats he had done which proved that he is indeed god when he began talking about people surrendering themselves to him and trusting in him for salvation many people turned away from him at one point the people turned away so quickly in john chapter 6 that jesus turned to his disciples and he said will you also go away what was once a multitude, where previously, the day prior, he had fed over 5,000 people with a few loaves of bread and a few fish. And now the same multitude and even greater people are come to him the next morning who are hungry for breakfast. And he tells them that he is the bread of life, that all who come to him will be saved. Many people find that saying too hard to believe, and they leave him. And he turns to his disciples and says, Will you also go away? The multitude of people had dwindled down to just 12. 12. When Jesus went up to the garden, there were only 11 disciples with him. And one of those 11, out of those 11, only three would go with him into the deeper part of the garden to pray. But even those three disciples failed him. As they fell asleep instead of praying, Jesus was alone as he prayed that night to the Father to remove the cup. He knew that he would soon have all the world's sin upon himself, which would lead to God the Father, turning his back on him and pouring out his wrath upon him. And he knew that he had to go through it all alone. And look at what we read here in Luke chapter 22 and verses 39 to 46. Luke 22, 39 to 46. And he came out and went as he was wont, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples also followed him. And when he was at the place, he said unto them, Pray that ye enter not into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast and kneeled down and prayed saying father if thou be willing remove this cup from me nevertheless not my will but thine be done and there appeared an angel unto him from heaven strengthening him and being in an agony he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground and when he rose up from prayer and was come to his disciples, he found them sleeping for sorrow, and said unto them, "Why sleepy, rise and pray lest ye enter into temptation." And with our time this morning, I'd like to take a closer look at this cup that Jesus would drink from. Now first, I want you to notice the content of the cup, the content of the cup. What was it that was so bad that led Jesus to ask three times to remove? it? Now we know the content of this cup was so bad because jesus agonized over it verse 44 here in luke 22 tells us that when he went back to the lord the second time and even the third time praying about him to remove it more earnestly he prayed it says that it led to him sweating great drops of blood again and being in an agony he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling to the ground the emotional agony of drinking the cup was leading to the most extreme physical trauma. What was it that caused so much agony? Was it physical death by crucifixion that caused agony that he knew was coming? Was it just the emotional toil? And certainly such torture from the cross would cause agony for sure as crucifixion was one of the most horrific, and then one of the most painful death sentences that a person could ever receive. But others had died the same way. Others had been crucified before Christ and had faced the same agony that Christ demonstrated or had, had, had understood the, the same idea of what he was going to go through but hadn't had the same agony that Christ demonstrated here. Many believers have been martyred and in their dying moments have proclaimed that they were glad to offer themselves to the, for the cause of Christ, even in their dying moments. So it wasn't physical death that Jesus was shrinking back from. Not even the pains of crucifixion. So was it maybe some extraordinary attack from Satan that he was agonized over? Well, no. Because Satan had already tempted Jesus in the wilderness and had been defeated. Undoubtedly, Satan had been hounding Jesus all the way leading up to the cross. But Jesus at no point ever feared Satan in fact, in John 12 and verse 31, Jesus declared, he said, now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. So what was it then that was breaking Jesus down physically? Breaking him down to the point that we read again in verse 44 of Luke 22. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was as it were, great drops of blood falling to the ground. What led to this? Was it the fact that Judas had betrayed him? Was it the fact that the disciples had fallen asleep? He does express disappointment in the disciples falling asleep when he had asked them to remain awake and to pray. But there's a huge difference between disappointment and dread. So what was it that led Jesus to ask God to remove the cup from him? What was in this cup that he didn't want to drink? Well, first I want you to notice the pollution of sin was in this cup. The pollution of sin. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15, we're told of Christ. It says, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted, like as we are, yet without sin. Jesus faced every temptation to sin that you and I will ever face. And the Bible says that in all the temptation, he was still without sin. And then we're told in 2 Corinthians 5.21, which is the verse that we've been looking at in our evening service. It says, For he hath made him to be sin for us. God made Christ to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus was perfect in every way, without sin in every way, and yet the Bible says he was made to be sin for us. Do you know what was in that cup? Your sin was in that cup. My sin was in that cup. The sins of all of humanity were in the cup that Jesus was about to drink. All of it. Not just some of our sin. Every little bit of it. As the song states, my sin not in part but the whole was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Every bit of it. He took upon him shoulders. Every vile thought, every wicked deed, every hurtful, every hateful action, all of the deceitful looks that we have ever offered, all the sins of the church, all the sins of the cities, all the sins of the nations, all the sins of the world were all in that cup. Jesus didn't just take all the sins of the world over his shoulders. He didn't just carry it with him in a bag. He became sin for us, the Bible says. Jesus who never sinned, but he was made to be sin for us because he carried it all to the cross on our behalf. Jesus knew that when he drank that cup, he would be numbered among the transgressors. Him whose name is holy. The perfect and spotless Lamb of God, which came to take away the sin of the world, became sin for us. The pollution of sin was in that cup, but also the punishment of sin was in that cup. When Jesus drank the cup, he knew that he was taking on the full punishment of all of our sin. He was taking it upon himself. And it wasn't just that Jesus died for the sins of some people, but he died for the sins of the entire world. In 1 John 2, verse 2, the Bible states, and he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Since Jesus became sin for all the people of the world who have ever lived and who will ever live, God the Father treated him as if he had committed all the sins of all the people. That's why we read in Romans chapter 8 and verse 32, it says, he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up For us all. God spared not his own son, but numbered his only begotten son among all the transgressors of all the world collectively. He poured all all his wrath upon him. He took upon himself all of our sin. We read the same idea in, in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse number 10. It said, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He that hath he hath put him to grief, the Bible says. When Jesus took upon himself all of our sin, God the Father had to treat him as if he would have had to treat us. In Romans six twenty-three, the Bible tells us very clearly that the wages of sin is death. Therefore, our sin deserved eternal punishment from God, eternal punishment in hell. And Jesus knew that he was going to suffer the eternal torment of hell because when he drank the cup that has was polluted with all of our sin and had all the punishment of all of our sin, knowing that it deserved eternal punishment in hell, he knew this is what he was drinking. The weight of it all was pressing upon him in the garden for he knew he was going to experience the pains of hell equal to what every human being deserved to suffer for all of eternity. Jesus knew he was about to suffer not just a portion of the wrath of God, but the full wrath of God for every sin, the only begotten of the Father, the one who has existed for all eternity, the one who spoke the world into existence, the one who had been eternally joined with the Heavenly Father, was going to be separated from him While he was upon the cross, Jesus knew the pain that he would experience would lead him to cry out from the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Even though that cry would sound from his lips, Jesus knew that the righteousness and the holiness of God would lead him to forsake his only begotten Son because his only begotten Son had become sin for a sinful human race. It's hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine because our minds lack the ability to comprehend something far beyond our level of understanding. But Christ suffered eternity's worth of God's wrath for sin upon that cross. Eternity's worth of God's wrath for sin upon that cross. Our sin, whether individual or collective, is an eternal offense against a holy God. One sin is an eternal offense against a holy God. Even if Christ took upon him the sin of one man, he would have still had to suffer eternal punishment from the hand of God, but Christ suffered for the sins of the entire world every single one of us the sins of the world were, comp- were, were compressed to be poured out upon jesus when he was on this cross the punishment and the weight of that sin was not watered down jesus didn't take it easy on his only begotten son because he knew that he was an innocent man taking the place of sinful sinful world it wasn't diminished in any capacity the full brunt of God's wrath was fully invested and poured out upon Jesus Christ as he became sin for us. Jesus, being infinite, eternal, always existing, was able to bear in a finite period of time there on the cross what would have required each and every one of us eternity to bear. In other words, God poured out upon his only begotten Son an infinite amount of pain and suffering while he was on the cross. It doesn't make sense to us. It doesn't make sense to us. We can't logically compute this in our minds because how can an infinite amount of pain and suffering be doled out in a finite period of time? And yet, that is exactly what Christ endured for every single believer, for every single sinner. What will take take the unrighteous and the wicked eternity to experience Jesus' experienced in his time upon the cross? and what blows our minds even more than trying to figure out how that's all possible. Jesus knew that this was all coming. He knew that it was all coming. He knew exactly how much he was going to suffer. None of it took him by surprise. He knew how much he was going to suffer and he still came to earth in the first place. He knew exactly how agonizing it would be. He knew exactly how excruciating the pain and the torture and the torment and the humiliation it would be. He knew how relentless the suffering would be. He knew how miserable it would all be. And he still went to the cross for every single one of us. If that doesn't doesn't move you, check to see if you have a pulse. We get nervous, we get anxious, we get fearful, we get stressed about all sorts of different things, about meetings, about deadlines, about doctor's appointments, and other matters that will ultimately come and go. Everything we could ever experience amounts to less than a drop in a bucket compared to what Jesus endured for our sakes. And that's being modest. And he willingly endured it all knowing all that was going to come. If this knowledge doesn't increase your appreciation for Christ, your heart is harder than a rock. That is the content of the cup, which makes sense that Christ would pray to God as he did there in Luke 22, verse 42, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. We've defined what the cup is, but notice second, the consumption of the cup, the consumption of the cup. Look at verses 41 and 42 once more. And he, with, he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast and kneeled down and prayed saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. The consumption of the cup. Jesus prayed and asked God to remove the cup because he knew exactly what was in it. He knew it contained the pollution of sin. He knew it contained the punishment of sin, and the weight of that was heavy upon him. Some people look at this and think less of Christ, that he prayed and asked God to remove this from him. But him praying for the cup to be removed, it actually makes me think more highly of him. Think about this with me for a moment. Jesus, we're told in Matthew, asked three times three times for the cup to be removed. When I think about this, this makes it seem more real to me. It shows that this was not an act. Jesus going to the cross was not something that he was coerced into doing. It wasn't something that he was doing against his will. God the Father didn't strong arm his only begotten Son and say, you're doing this whether you like it or not. Everything Jesus did even going to the cross, even drinking the cup of the pollution of sin and the punishment of sin and taking it all upon Him, becoming sin for us, all of it, Jesus was doing voluntarily, willingly, of His own volition. And that is seen in Him asking for the cup to be removed. Again, verse 42, Father, if Thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but Thine be done. You see, if this were something that Jesus didn't have a say in, if God the Father strong-armed His only begotten said and said, you're going down there, there's a group of helpless, race, uh, helpless sinful race of men that need help and there's no help uh, found other than through you, you're going to take their place, you're going to suffer on their behalf, and you're going to do this without question. Go now and don't turn back. If that was to say, and and God the Father didn't allow him the opportunity to question, to to hesitate, to be reluctant, and if he was strong-armed in doing that, we wouldn't be reading what we read there in verse 42. Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. But none of that happened. Jesus would have been following orders without an opportunity to refuse, but that's not what happened here. He asks God to remove the cup and find some other way, basically, to accomplish his purposes. But he also acknowledges that if there is no other way, if it is still his will, he's willing to do what needs to be done. That willingness of Christ makes me love him even more. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly how horrific all of it was going to be. And he still came to earth and he still would drink the cup knowing he didn't have to do it. He didn't have to do it. Jesus chose to do the Father's will knowing that he was bringing upon himself eternity's worth of punishment for the sins of the world. When we sing, and we will shortly, Jesus paid it all. We don't even know the half of it. We don't even know the half of it believers will never know the pain and the agony that Jesus experienced leading up to the cross and there even upon the cross he didn't have to do any of it he had a choice and his choice as we see there in verse 44 or verse 42 was to do the will of the father nevertheless not my will but thine be done thine be done jesus chose to die for us. He chose to continue forward knowing how dreadfully awful it was going to be to drink the cup of pollution and the punishment of our sin. He chose to be sin for us knowing that the wages of our sin was eternal death. There was no sin in Him and would never have been any death in Him. And yet He willingly chose to die for us. When Adam chose to follow Satan in the Garden of Eden, he said to God, God, not your will, but mine be done. And he brought ruin upon the entire human race from that point forward. He sent a shockwave throughout humanity that eternally condemned every single person who would ever live. Jesus, the last Adam, in a different garden, said to God, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Had Jesus chosen not to be our substitute, had he chosen not to go through with drinking the cup of pollution of sin and the punishment of all of our sin, had he chosen not to go to the cross in our place, had he chosen not to become sin for any of us, every one of us would have been responsible for all of our sin, facing the eternal consequences of being separated from God from God and burning eternally in hell. That is what we would have received. And that would have been a just punishment for what we would have earned. But Jesus said instead, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. It is only because Jesus drank the cup and suffered and bled and died on the cross that any of us can ever be redeemed from our sin. He took it all upon himself and he paid it all upon the cross. And this is really important for everyone to understand, there's not a single sin that goes unpunished. If God were to turn a blind eye to sin or to sweep some sin under the rug, he would cease to be God. God's holiness, therefore, requires sin, all sin, to be punished. And the cross was God's way of punishing all sin, but also the cross was God's way of forgiving the sinner. The only way sinners are forgiven is through Jesus Christ being our substitute upon the cross. Jesus taking our sin. Jesus receiving the punishment that we deserve to receive for all eternity. He took it upon himself and offered forgiveness for all who believe in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21, I read this earlier. It says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That second part of that verse, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, is the part where we receive forgiveness, where sinners receive forgiveness when they believe on Jesus Christ. Everything that Jesus did for us in drinking the cup was so that we might receive forgiveness. The punishment is fully paid for at the cross, but not everyone receives forgiveness. Only those who recognize that their sin was nailed to the cross with Christ, that the full debt of sin was paid for through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the only means by which their sin can be paid for, and then believe on Him as their Savior, only they receive that forgiveness. The offer of forgiveness is extended to all, but the offer of forgiveness is not received by all. Although the wages of everyone's sin was paid for at the cross, Many choose to remain unforgiven from their sin as they reject the notion that Jesus is the only means by which their sins can be paid for. I want you to notice, third, the communion of the cup. The communion of the cup. Earlier that night, Jesus was having the the Passover feast with his disciples. And as they were there in that upper room, before they ever left to go to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he would pray here three times in our passage this morning, Jesus instituted what we refer to as the Lord's Supper. And I want you to listen to what he said in Luke 22 and verse number 20. Earlier on in this chapter, Luke 22 and verse number 20. Likewise, also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. Before going to the Garden of Gethsemane and praying that God the Father might remove the cup of suffering, the cup of pollution, the cup of punishment from sin from him, Jesus mentioned another cup as he was with the disciples there in the upper room, celebrating this Passover meal and celebrating all that it meant and instituting something that would change how they viewed the Passover from this moment forward. He spoke of another cup there in verse number 20. Again, he says, likewise also the cup after supper. This cup is the new testament in my blood, which is shed for you. What they didn't realize then was that he is instituting the communion cup. The cup of communion was only possible because of the cup of suffering that he would drink in just a short time later on. What a blessing it is that we never today have to to drink the cup of suffering. The cup that holds all the pollution of our sin and all the punishment of our eternal sin. We never have to drink that because the communion of the cup was offered first. Jesus takes our sin and drinks it up. And in turn, as we believe in Him, we receive His righteousness and are able to have that blessed communion with Him. Does that sound like a fair trade to you? Jesus takes the cup of suffering, which the contents are the entire pollution of all of our sin and the entire punishment of all of our sin, the entire race of mankind, all collectively, in the cup of suffering that he would drink. And he drinks it for all of us and offers us to have that cup of communion with him. Does that sound like a fair trade to you? No, it doesn't, does it? It doesn't sound like a fair trade in the least. By far. By far. It's not even close. Jesus takes the worst of it. Eternally, he takes the worst of it. We end up with something so eternally glorious that we never deserved Christ was so exceeding sorrowful the Bible says to the point of death and we're told in verse 43 here in Luke chapter 22 that an angel came to strengthen him he was in so much physical agony that he sweat great drops of blood sometimes Jesus would pray standing up Sometimes he would pray kneeling. But on this occasion, we're told in Matthew 26, verse 39, it says, He went a little further and fell on his face and prayed. Before he was even beaten and nailed to the cross, he was bleeding internally. He sweat great drops of blood there in the garden. I've often wondered what Jesus looked like after Pilate had him scourged, thinking that the physical agony didn't really begin until after he was arrested. But we're told here that he was already falling apart physically. His heart was literally breaking. His body was falling apart from the inside out. I'm not a physician, and I'm not going to get into the specifics as to what condition would have been going on within his body to have his sweat, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. But this is not a normal reaction of a person who is in peak physical condition. This is showing us that from the inside out, he was being crushed physically. When Jesus said in Matthew 26, verse 38, my soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. That word sorrowful has the idea of being separated, of being alone and isolated. Long before anyone ever spit in his face, long before anyone hit him in his face, long before he was whipped and beaten, long before the nails were ever driven through his hands and his feet, long before his side was even pierced with a spear, his soul was dying. As agonizing as his time was in the Garden of Gethsemane, the battle was won there in the Garden. There in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus experienced the greatest agony any man would ever experience. There in the garden, Jesus would willingly choose to take the sinner's place. There in the garden, Jesus would offer himself up to suffer for all sin. The entire course of human history could have been drastically different had Christ prayed slightly different. The entire race of man could have remained eternally doomed had Christ deemed the cup of suffering too much to drink. What compelled this decision? What compelled him to say what he said in verse 42? Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. What led the perfect, spotless Lamb of God to offer himself up on the altar of God's wrath and bear all the sin of the place of sinful men. Knowing the fierceness of God's wrath, knowing the severity of man's sin, what compelled Jesus to say the last words there in verse 42, "'Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done.'" Christ's humanity was falling and failing under the weight of the cross. He, his physical body was literally coming apart from the agony of the eternal suffering that he was about to endure, and he chose to keep moving forward. Why? Why? As much as he was physically suffering, his divine love for man kept him moving forward. Romans 5.8 tells us, But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It was purely the love of God that won out that night. It was only Christ's love for his creation that kept him going to drink the cup of suffering, to say those words, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Jesus wasn't wrestling with God the Father. He wasn't wrestling with Satan. He was wrestling with his humanity, and he was doing it for us. He fought his physical body and his soul that was exceeding sorrowful to the point of death, and saw every sinner hopelessly lost and unable to save himself, and so he stayed the course. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. In the greatest agony, with the weight of the cross crushing him physically, Jesus would take and drink the cup of suffering, so that through faith in his finished work, we might eternally enjoy the cup of communion with him. As we prepare in just a few weeks to celebrate all that Christ endured, and even with a limited grasp of the full scope of what Christ suffered, may we rejoice knowing that our Savior did indeed pay it all for us upon that cross, and that he did it purely out of a love that we may never understand here, but one day we'll be able to see him face-to-face as we put our faith in him and know what that love really feels like. He indeed paid it all, and he paid it all because he loves you. So let's pray as we close our time this morning, and as we think about those words, as we sing them in just a moment, let's think about them with joy as we consider all that he paid on our behalf. Heavenly Father, we thank you And Lord, even the words thank you don't seem like enough. We know, Lord, that you indeed paid it all. Lord, because with your sacrifice, with you willingly offering yourself on our behalf, we know, Lord, that salvation became possible. Without it, Lord, we're hopelessly lost. But with it, and believing in his finished work, Lord, we are eternally saved. Lord, while here on earth, we may not see it all and understand all that you've done for us. Lord, we know that you've paid it all. You drank the cup of suffering. So that through faith in Jesus Christ, we might be able to take up the cup of communion. And fellowship with you eternally. I pray, Lord, that our hearts are united in joy, rejoicing together for the fact that we have a savior who loves us enough, knowing all that he would experience to suffer and to drink the cup, that we should have spent eternity suffering and drinking. Thank you, Lord, for loving us in a way in which we could never understand, at least not here. Thank you for being long suffering. Thank you for your mercy your compassion, and your grace, which has made salvation possible to all who believe on Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.